We're going to pick up in Genesis 48, and we're going to touch on a few different things from Genesis 48, 49, and 50 um, as we finish considering the life of Joseph. In this scene, I always seem to have this little paragraph that begins with, in this scene. But in this scene of his life, the death of Jacob brings fear in the hearts of of Joseph's brothers, right? You can imagine what's happening. Their father is about to die. And they wonder if the death of their father is going to be the permission that Joseph needs to, to begin to uh, exact his revenge, right? While the cat is away, the mouse will play. Um, so they wonder if, if their brother, who is in power and powerful over them, would now feel free to to get back at his brothers. So they seek, they seek out his forgiveness from a distance. Joseph replies in the way that we have come to expect, with total trust in God. And so we see an example, broken as it is, of how to ask for forgiveness, and an example of how to grant it. And we see that uh, in this exchange between um, Joseph and his brothers. But we also see uh, what it looks like to trust in God and how that trust in God issues in a, in a changed life. Very powerful statements here by Joseph in chapter 50 where he says, What men meant for evil, God meant for good. Really interesting verse. It doesn't say what men meant for evil, God used for good. Or God was able to kind of pick it up and turn it to good or brush it up. He said, what men meant for evil, God actually meant for good. So you got the, the desires of men, which are often sinful, but God still yet redeems even the sinful intentions of men and, and uses them for his purposes. So let's read a little bit in uh, Genesis 48. Verses 8 through 10 is where we're going to kind of focus in on, but why don't we just begin at the beginning of the chapter. It says this, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took, he took with him two sons, his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at, at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring for you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine and Reuben, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Padan... To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, uh, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrathah. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Verse 8, these are the two verses we're going to focus in on. When Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's eyes, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Are you seeing a, 
a repeat of something that has happened before, right? Where the, the father wants to bless the younger generation. And then the, the parallel gets even deeper. Verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Who else has this happened to? Right? His father. So Joseph brought him near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, and of course he gives the blessing, and then look down at verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your, your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Interesting, interesting parallels here happening. Because remember when Isaac gave a blessing to his, his kids? It was when he was old, it was when he couldn't see, and it was the result of deception, right? And now this is happening to Jacob, Israel. It's not usually that loud. <laughs> Now it's happening to, to Jacob, Israel, and Joseph is trying to set something straight, right? He doesn't want the same problem to occur, but this time, this time, the way that the, that the blessing is being done is as it should be because Jacob knows exactly what he's doing and he's saying, no, this is the way that it ought to be. So if you look here on your papers, I've highlighted this. It says, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So we see another installment of a father about to bless a son or about to bless offspring, but he cannot see what he's doing. The last time this happened, it happened to Jacob from his father Isaac. But in this blessing, both Ephraim and Manasseh were blessed. But Ephraim is, is to have a greater place in the future growth of the people. So, in other words, through both of these children, God's promise is going to come, right? I'm going to make you, I'm not going to make you great. I'm going to make you into a nation. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Right? This is part of that promise coming true. Nobody is really getting slighted here. Nobody is really getting shortchanged. Um, but... Ephraim is to have a greater place in the future growth of the people. It says that in verse 19. What's interesting, what's interesting about this is that Ephraim later in the Bible was wayward in terms of idolatry. In Hosea 4.17, it talks about this. Um, yet is still spoken um, by God or of God, still spoken by God as favored says this, Is not Ephraim my dear son, 
the child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, it says in Jeremiah 31. So, in other words, even though Ephraim and his offspring and his tribe, right, they become part of the evil northern kingdom that rebels uh, from, from God, even so, even in the midst of all of this, God hasn't forget, forgotten his promises to his people. And he says, he says this, Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. It's very, very powerful language. From Ephraim that would come Joshua, Samuel, and later Jeroboam the first, the first northern king of the, the divided kingdom. So it's not all bleak. It's not all bad. Through Ephraim, we get Joshua, we get Samuel and, and Jeroboam. But anyway, uh, this is just one of those interesting little things about how God has worked in history and has remembered his people, uh, even in the midst of their sin and rebellion. God has not turned away fully from them. Let's look in chapter 49. We're going to look in verses 8 through 10. There is, as you see, perhaps this is laid out in your Bible in a different way. It's almost laid out like like poetry. Uh, maybe if your Bible, if the typesetting there is kind of um, has kind of distinguished it from uh, just the rest of the words around it. These are the, the different blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. If you look at verses eight through ten, it says this: Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Does this sound awfully familiar? Remember when Joseph was having his dreams? What did he dream? He dreamed that his brothers would bow down before him, right? And how did Jacob take that? Remember, even Jacob didn't think it was appropriate for him to be dreaming this stuff, right? Even Jacob um, thought it was, as I say, inappropriate. But now, Jacob himself is giving a similar blessing to Judah. He's saying to Judah, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, another your brothers, shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey uh, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. And then it says this in, in verse 10, the scepter, in other words, the who holds the scepter? The king does, right? The king holds the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the king is going to come through Judah's family. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Whenever the, the Old Testament says from between his feet, it has to do with offspring, right? It has to do with children and grandchildren. Um, the, the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until a tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Isn't that interesting? He says of, of, Je- of Judah's offspring, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's interesting here that the very thing, of course, as I say, that that Jacob rebuked in Joseph, now Joseph decrees over the life of Judah. Apparently, um, 
Jacob has had a change of heart. He now sees the wisdom in, in what Joseph dreamt, uh, and he's passing it along down to Judah. Uh, some kind of rule is pictured as coming through the line of Judah. We have the benefit, of course, we know now, living on the other side of the New Testament, we can kind of look back and we can read in between the lines what may not have been clear to them in the moment. And that is that this, we can see clearly the full meaning in Jesus Christ. The true and better king would come through Judah's line. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This phrase is powerful when we consider who Jesus is and what God says of him later in the New Testament. But now the chapter or the, the, the book is about to close. Genesis is about to close, and there's a little bit of unresolved conflict. There's a little bit of unresolved, there's a plot hole here that needs to get resolved. Uh, my wife and I uh, just finished watching a, um, a, whole, a television series I have on, on DVD. Uh, many of you might be familiar with the TV show MASH that, that played through the, the 80s and things like that. Well, I don't know. I was a weird kid, and for one reason or another, uh, when, I, when I was 15 or 16, I, I, wanted the, I wanted to buy them. I just, I just thought they were funny. And, um, um, but anyway, I uh, introduced Whitney to them. And you know that the finale, which is two hours long, the finale is the most watched episode in all of television history. Uh, but anyway, uh, you didn't come here to hear TV trivia. Um, but uh, what's, what's interesting is that some of the episodes, I don't know, I don't think TV shows could get away with it today because everybody's so hard-nosed about continuity and things like that. But sometimes things will just happen in an episode and it just, it's just a complete plot hole. And something will happen and you're like, at the end of the episode, they're like, they didn't, they didn't tie a string on that. What happened to that? What, what happened there? You know, you never get any resolution. Well, and I don't know if that was because they were under such a time crunch to produce all the episodes and they just, I don't know, started cutting stuff and uh, 22 minutes, their 22 minutes was up and they had to end the episode. I don't know how all that works. But, um, but here, we don't have to worry about that because uh, the, the relationship between Joseph and his brothers gets resolved. Um, it, and, it, and it begins this way. Let's read verses 15 through 26, which I believe is through the end of the chapter. We're going to read verses 15 through the end of the chapter. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. They're kind of putting words in their father's mouth. We just, it's not clear whether or not this really happened. We have no other indication in the scriptures that, that Jacob actually said this. We uh, as scholars tend to think that this is just the brothers trying to cover themselves as best they can so that their brother will not come after them. Say to Joseph, they're, they're putting words in their father's mouth. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So, Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of, the, of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of the land of Egypt, that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And the book closes. So, here's what we can learn from this little section. just want to return to this. I've got it in italics there. I try to pull a little, uh, pull quotes every now and then to refocus what we're going to be zooming in on. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So in this scene, we can learn some interesting things about reconciliation. Here's what we learn. Number one, the brothers had, over time, become more clear-eyed about their own sin. They were able to speak about it fully and honestly. I think this is a work of the Lord, right? In the beginning, first of all, they're trying to cover their tracks. They're trying to do everything that they can to minimize their sin and to whatever, you know, um, they, they believe that they're, they're fully justified. Manasseh, I'm sorry, uh, Reuben, of course, tries to mitigate the sin, saying, well, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. Right? Just sell him into slavery. Uh, and so it's interesting to speak that way. But now, after the passage of years, they're able to use words like evil. They're able to use words like transgression. And they're able to use words like sin. Notice what he says in verse 15. All the evil that we did to him. And then, notice, they're, they're putting words in their father's mouth, but it's interesting to note the words that they're putting in their father's mouth. What are they, what are they having their dad say about what happened? Right? They're saying this, Forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Three words right there. Three powerful words in one sentence. Transgression, sin, and evil. And again, in verse 17, transgression, yeah, transgression comes up again. So literally, this is translated the crime of your brothers and their sin. They're even using legal language. They're, they're putting legal words into their father's mouth using the word crime. So, as they put words into their father's mouth, they use strong language. It's unlikely that Jacob knew about the extent of his son's sin against Joseph, right? It's never even mentioned in Scripture that Jacob comes to learn what their brothers did to him. 
We don't have any knowledge that that conversation ever took place. It's also likely they're, and I've said this, of course, I'm getting ahead of my paper. They're putting words uh, in, in their father's mouth because of this, because it's never recorded elsewhere in Scripture that their father even knew what had gone on. So here's how we can apply this. Confessions of sin work best when they are done fully, without qualifications. Ken Sandy, in a book called um, The Peacemaker, phenomenal book, Ken Sandy has, has written a helpful guide for confession, and he named it the seven A's of confession. He says this, when you confess a sin, do this. Address everyone involved. Avoid things like if, but, or maybe. Admit specifically. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. In other words, there's, there's, a, difference between con- there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences that arise from sin. So accept the consequences that come from it. Alter your behavior and ask for forgiveness. Um, I would say that One time I was counseling a married couple, and I went through this with them because the husband, um, the husband had, uh, had wronged his wife in a few different ways. And I think that one of, their, one of their problems in their relationship between one another was that he, he just kind of, he kind of skipped the first six and went down to the last one. And, and kind of didn't acknowledge how he had hurt his wife. Um, and didn't understand how there might be consequences that were long-lasting. Um, he had used some language that, that was qualifying. Um, and so for the first time, after, after we went through this for a couple of weeks, he said, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard how to, how to ask for forgiveness before now. And so a little progress was made, and we, we pray for that. Uh, but Ken Sandy has given us some helpful guides there, and it seems like it seems like the brothers of Joseph here have applied some of this. They have not; they're no longer qualifying their sin. They're saying strong language. They're using strong words, and and um, uh, helps to move the ball down the field. How does Joseph respond? Right? Um, in a, um, I think forgiveness is a is an attitude. It's also a transaction. Right? It's two sides to that coin. Joseph responds in humility. Uh, and here's how we can learn how to respond in humility. Um, he can do so because he knows that he isn't God. He understands that he is not in the place of God. And so he can accept or he can extend forgiveness. Look at verse 19. It says this. I can put my eyes on it. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph understands that judgment is reserved for God. God is the only true judge. So Joseph is like, even though Joseph is very powerful, even though Joseph uh, has the ability to exact revenge, he says, I'm, I'm not in the place of God. So I'm not, 
I may have a, I may hold a high position, but I don't understand myself to be high and lifted up. I understand myself to be humble, place myself under the lordship of God Almighty. Okay, remember, and we, we spoke about this actually a couple weeks ago, uh, or last Sunday morning, about anger. Remember that inner sense of justice, right? It's a good thing that God has given us. God has given us a sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice. We have that in us because we're created in the image of God, and the God in whose image we are created is a God of justice. So we also have a, a sense of justice that, that is inside of us, but because of Genesis 3, that sense of justice is twisted, right? Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, uh, it's smaller than it needs to be, and then sometimes it's much larger than it needs to be, and it rears its, it rears its head. Um, it tries to convince us that we are the judge sometimes, but Joseph understands he is not. He's not God. Secondly, Joseph can do this. He can respond in humility because he has God's sovereignty in view. Look at verse 20. Uh, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, one of the keys to extending forgiveness is understanding that God intends to use the bad things that people do to you for good. If you don't understand that, you're just going to be keeping a scorecard. You're going to be keeping a list of wrongs, right? Love keeps no record of wrong. If, if, if you don't understand that God has a purpose in your life for the arrows that other people throw to you, right? That God is going to redeem that, that He's going to use it to make you more like Jesus, then it's just about tallying up the score. Uh, Joseph understands that, uh, that he really does trust that God can use evil for good ends. And then lastly, he can do so because he has eternity in view. And this is the second part of verse 20. The first part of verse 20 says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see God's grand purposes that went on during the midst of this conflict? In other words, the conflict isn't the end game. God used it to produce something that would ring through eternity in preserving his people, right? Why was it that God allowed this sin to happen, right? God's not the author of evil. He didn't cause it. But in a sense, he ordained it, right? He, he was sovereign over the sin, even so. Why did God allow Joseph to be sold into slavery? So that he could be raised up to such an estate that he could be in charge of the grain so that the very people of God could be preserved, so that they wouldn't starve, so that they could live, and so that one day later through Judah, the Savior could come to rescue all of humanity. Jake, uh, Joseph had eternity in view. In other words, if, if our focus is on the 78.54 years on average, right? If, if our focus is on that, 
We're going to be tallying up the score. We're going to be living for, for what's right before us here and now. But if our view is toward eternity, we can ask for forgiveness. We can extend forgiveness. We can reconcile and we can live for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You're good to us in that you don't just give us a book full of rules. You give us examples. You give us stories. And we get to look inside the stories and see the times where we have failed. And we get to learn from them. We get to see what it looks like to, to follow you successfully. We get to see what it looks like to be a God-fearer like Joseph was. And he, he responded, it seems, at so many points. Of course, he was, he was imperfect. But he responded at so many points like we should. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take a page from Joseph's book, from the book of Joseph's life, apply it to our lives so that we could live in a Christ-honoring way. Lord, as we reflect tonight on the Word of God, I pray that it would be useful to us. I pray that it would be edifying to us. And I pray that we would be able to apply it wisely to the situations that arise in our own lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.